Hey, good morning, everyone. My name is Dustin Yankaski, and I'm one of the Campus Life Pastors here at LifePoint Westerville. If you're stepping in back with us, I uh, just want to welcome you back, say thankful uh, that you are here worshiping with us. Um, if you're stepping back in with us or stepping in with us for the first time, I just want to extend a special welcome to you as our guest. Um, just want to reiterate, if you would go to lpguest.com and fill out a guest information card and let us know you were here, uh, we'd be super thankful for that. Um, we'll actually make a $5 donation on your behalf to a local ministry, just as a way to say thank Thanks for, for, for tuning in and for filling that out. Um, we've been in the book of Luke in the Bible. Uh, we've been reading through it and praying through it as a church. And uh, the book of Luke is simply put about Jesus, right? His life, his death, his resurrection. Uh, it's, it's all a story about him. Now, along the way, as it tells this story, we have other side stories that come up, right? Stories about his disciples and stories about uh, people that he engages along the way throughout his ministry. And some of these people are labeled. They feel distant, separated from the love of God, the love and grace of God. And, and they just have this label, this group, this tribe. And Jesus comes to them. He sees them and engages with them and calls them to live a life above that label and to first live for him. Right? Preeminent, above everything else, to live for him. And, and today we'll be looking at one of the groups of people that Jesus is constantly confronting and being confronted by. And that's the those in the religious crowd, under the religious label. Some may think religion and Jesus as almost synonymous. They are not, right? This group was one of the biggest enemies of Jesus. They would eventually be the group that kills him. And these were not people that were interested in following Jesus. They would rather follow their rules and traditions instead. For today, we could use the words religious and legalist interchangeably. And the religious people were constantly offended and angry at Jesus and the grace that he showed. Religious people, simply put, put behavior in front of belief. And Jesus was saying, no, it's about believing in me. I have come to show you the way. Believe. And they say, no, behave. (laughs) In Luke 13, we'll see one of the many times Jesus and religion clash head on. In this one story, one person is marked by religion under the label religion, and one is marked by grace. And, but before we get into that, I want to take a moment before jumping into our passage, because we can kind of have this tendency to read through Scripture almost at arm's distance, like, oh, that's that religious person. That's that person marked by grace. But this is God's word for us, too. Martin Luther said that the default mode of the human heart is religion. So the question I have for us is, If Jesus walked around in our homes, at our jobs, around our church, knowing our hearts, our thoughts, and actions, would this religious label show itself in our lives? Maybe for some of you, you know, religion and legalism is is the reason that you're not all in with God, right? Like, it's just kind of repulsive to you. So, you know, this this God, this, this thought of God maybe being similar to religion, you've just kept him at arm's distance. This leading with behavior just leaves a bad taste in your mouth. You're just here, though. You're keeping God at a safe different, a distance, just trying to figure this out. That he's got these lists of behaviors, these do's and don'ts, And he just wants you to fall in line with him. Or maybe you're not even doing very well behaviorally. So you're you're like, why would I really go all in with a God that I know is probably upset with me? Or you look at Christians 
And you, you probably maybe rightly assume, hey, I've actually got them beat in the morality department or the behavior department. So why would I even bother with a God that's behind that? What's the point? If this is you, would you be willing to listen to Jesus, to God's word? Because he'd agree with you that in the sense that religion, behavior first, is pointless. But he wants you to catch how sweet and mesmerizing his grace is for you. And how a relationship with him by grace always leads out before behavior. That he so loves you that he came to die for you so that you would believe, not behave. For others of us, we know that eternity hinges on grace through faith, not a result of works. We know that, but, and this but gets inserted, but now we think that growth or the Christian walk hinges on something other than the grace that we've already been given in Jesus. We maybe look at ourselves or others with this religious, this behavioral lens. We know that's not true. We know that doesn't lead out, but we find ourselves there. And I got a question for you. When that happens, what do you think that costs us spiritually? To to live a life, to live our Christian walk out of this behavioral lens instead of this, this grace lens, this grace label that Jesus wants to give us. What do you think that costs you? Would you allow God's word to bring you back to his amazing grace and do and let his spirit do the work that only it can do in our soul? So let's look at these two people under the grace and religion labels here in Luke 13. Uh, Luke 13, verse 10, just gives us some context here. It says, now he, Jesus, was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus shifts his direction, his attention towards Jerusalem, where he'll eventually die and rise as our Savior. And so he stops in synagogues along the way. This is actually one of the last recorded times that he enters a synagogue. And a synagogue is really just kind of the old covenant equivalent of a church, right? People would gather, hear the word of God, pray together, and Jesus enters into this space on his way to Jerusalem. This is where the story takes place. Verse 11 And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. And this woman is at church, so to say. After 18 years with a disabling spirit. Think about that for a second. And she wasn't so bitter that after 18 years, she she goes, man, what's the point of even going? She wasn't angry with God, shaking her fist. How how could a good God allow this to happen to me? She didn't even consider her circumstances as an excuse to not go. Right? Remember, this is before public transit. She did not take the bus. She is walking with this disabling spirit and all the pain and discomfort to church. Sometimes church can be the first thing that gets excused away in our schedules, right? But she thought it was important enough. The other thing to notice is that while physical elements were there, that the cause was spiritual in nature. She has a disabling spirit, it says, afflicted somehow spiritually that it was manifesting itself physically. Now, we are both spirit and body, right? Sometimes what's going on is 
physically is just physically caused, right? It's solely the physical. You know, I, I, we took a trip recently to, to Florida and went to Disney, um, and it was a hot Florida day in, in June. It was like 102 heat index. I've got twins that are five, and my oldest is seven, and we're standing in line for 30, 45 minutes, an hour. Uh, you know, that heat, you know, by one or two o'clock, they are losing their mind. Like, and I'm trying to hold it together. Like, this is supposed to be magical. You're going to have fun. And everybody's just melting down. Now, when they're losing their mind, melting down on the ground, screaming, crying, I'm not bringing out like holy water and dousing them. It, it's, it's a physical problem. They've reached the limits of what they can do as a five and seven-year-old, right? They need a nap. That's what they need. But because we are spirit too, sometimes, sometimes the underlying reason is spiritual, and no amount of physically addressing it will cause it, will remedy it. Now, this is not an anti-medicine stance. You know, the author Luke is a physician. He's clearly not anti-medicine. But he notes that this is a reality and the reason that this woman is disabled. And Jesus, in verse 12, it says, Jesus saw her. He called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. I love how verse 12 starts. When Jesus saw her, he saw her. What do you think Jesus saw when he looked at her? Can you, can we see this woman? For almost two decades, someone who struggled to sit, to stand, to walk, Something as basic as eating was a chore. That's just the physical. When Jesus sees, he sees just past the physical and also to the emotional. How discouraged she must have been. Maybe borderline feeling hopeless. Maybe even forgotten by God. You know, I, I watched a video recently of this guy. Uh, it basically chronicled him. Uh, he, you know, he lived in a small town, and he had this route he did in his morning routine, right? You know, he'd stop at, you know, a vendor, get a coffee, and stop, you know, and get his, his meals for the day at the grocery store, and then walk back, take a public transit uh, back to his apartment. And he just did that every day. Well, what happened was, um, he, what, the reality was, he, this is important, he's hearing impaired, right? So he did sign language, and it was always a struggle to communicate with people along the way. But anyway, so he goes about his day just like normal, but this day is different because everybody he starts to engage with is, is signing back to him. They know sign language, and they're talking to him, and he's like, man, this is weird. Like, these same people now all of a sudden know sign language and what's going on, and the big reveal happens at the end where they say, hey, you know, almost two dozen people in your town took the time to take private uh, American Sign Language lessons to communicate with you because we see you. And we know that this is difficult for you. And we want to step in to this and, and learn and actually care and love for you in this way. And when that reveal happens, of course, he breaks down because being seen to that level is overwhelming. It's powerful. Jesus sees her, sees us, and it's powerful. And someone needs to hear this today. He sees her, he engages with her. He says, woman, you are freed from your disability. You know, on a weekend that we were celebrating our country's freedom, 
from oppression, which was achieved after seven years of intense bloodshed. Actually, I was doing some research on this. Uh, I read somewhere that the death toll in, in, in the uh, Revolutionary War as a percentage of U.S. population at the time was three times more costly than World War II. When I think about World War II, I think, wow, that, you know, it's great life lost. I said, well, it's three times more in comparison to the population at the time. So we achieved, as a country, freedom from oppression at that great cost. This woman was freed from 18 years of oppression simply by Jesus' word. She was freed immediately. And we could easily just read past these parts in the story. We have to see he, he cared for, he saw, he cared for her. He chose to free her by his choice alone. There was no request by her to him. There was nothing that she did, like showed amazing faith or did some miraculous deed that he was like, wow, she's kind of earned this, so now I'm going to go do it. None, none of that. This is grace. God's unmerited favor towards her. Sheer grace. Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. The opposite of boasting happens actually. She glorified God. She glorified God. I mean, whoever does the work gets the glory, right? God did all of this. Jesus did all of this, so he gets all the glory. She did nothing. Man, what a day this must have been, right? To be in the room when it happened, to see this, oh, this is crazy. But, the next word in the next verse, verse 14, but, the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, not on the Sabbath day. What kind of person finds it difficult to celebrate this miracle? To celebrate God's pouring out of grace onto this woman. When, when a person sees a miracle, instead of letting that swell up to belief, goes, oh, you should behave better. The religious guy. The religious guy does. It says the ruler is indignant. He's offended. He doesn't marvel at the miracle. He gets passive aggressive with Jesus, right? He's mad at Jesus, but he doesn't talk to Jesus. He talks to the crowd, hoping that Jesus hears. And this is what we got to listen to. Listen, religion seeks to shift our attention away from the work of Jesus and tries to make it about our work instead, either work that we have done or work that we need to do. Religion seeks to shift our attention off of Jesus's work and instead onto our work. You see that here? And he had a chance. This ruler had a chance to self-correct and go, wow, I thought God's activity followed behavior. Clearly I'm wrong because they're not behaving like I thought they should. And God clearly did this miracle. Instead, he doubled down. And Jesus isn't having any of it. Verse 15, then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on this Sabbath day? And he said to these things, as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame and all the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were being done by him. The crowd has a chance to marvel and believe, 
But this guy starts to speak up and Jesus just shuts him down. And as he goes into it, he starts to unpack that the religious leaders believed, hey, it's not work to help an animal on the Sabbath, right? They need to drink. They need to be helped. And so we can untie them and lead them to water. That's not work. And Jesus is like, that's not work for an animal. Why is it work for a person? I just unbound her and helped her. You're hypocrites. With all the conflicts about the Sabbath, it's important to mention, Jesus wasn't breaking God's law, but the extra traditions that the religious people put on top of the Sabbath. They took God's word and they added to it. And they elevated what they added to the same importance as God's law. God gave Sabbath humanity to humanity to benefit humanity, for them to rest and reflect and honor him in it. And the religious people come around and go, oh, we got this new day off. Hey, you know what we need to do? Uh, we need to create some rules and uh, we need to make a list and you need to remember the list and you need to obey the list. And if you don't, there's going to be consequences. They've taken something meant to be a delight and turned it into a duty. You know, it's like me, last, uh, about two years ago, uh, I uh, decided I, I needed a fence in my backyard, you know, Two years ago, at the height of the cost of wood, it cost me as much uh, to, uh, to build this fence as I could have bought a small country for because I plan things out so well. Um, but the desire was for me to create a backyard space where my dog could be out without roaming the neighborhood and my kids could be safe. And I just, you know, yes, there's a barrier, but that meant my yard now was a place to be enjoyed in freedom, right? You have the whole yard to yourself. Do anything you want. You're safe. The Sabbath was like that fence. Hey, beyond this, it's not helpful for you. So I have this, this command in place for your flourishing. And the religious people get their hands on it. And they say, yeah, you know what? That fence though, um, we should add a warning track to it. So you know when you're getting really close, right? And don't even go on the warning track. Just like stay away. So like in baseball field, we're going to put a dirt warning track leading up to the fence. Don't, don't get there. Like, you better not, right? And oh gosh, and then they step back and look at it and they're like, oh, but you can still see the fence and you might be tempted to go beyond the fence if you can see it. So let's build a, you know, further back, we'll build a taller fence so you can't even see the warning track in the fence behind it. That'll keep people from even being tempted to break it. And so we're going to build this tall fence, but you know what? People are going to look at that tall fence now and go, I wonder what's on the other side of that. So let's put barbed wire around the top of the fence. And now the yard, which was meant to be enjoyed in freedom, is a prison. And something given to be enjoyed in freedom is now a duty. Ironically, something that was supposed to be free of work is now work to keep because of religion. Legalism, religion, is a cruel taskmaster. You see why Jesus is always clashing with these religious people. You're supposed to be leading these people in freedom that God offers. And you're just beating them up with religion. And so I want to spend the rest of our time helping us land this. To bring this home for us. How do we know if our lives are under any religious influence? Any religious label? And how do we allow the grace of Jesus to work itself in our lives more and more? 
And so I, I just want to share something with you, the way that I've tried to process, uh, the way that I have processed certain things. I, I hope it'll be helpful for you uh, because the premise of this is you ever hear something, you're like, okay, like I read this in scripture or I hear this and I, I recognize it's true and I know that that needs to change my life somehow. But how do I take something that I know is true and actually land it practically in my life? Like take this thought or idea or truth and like, how does it get wings and, and, and feet and actually get traction? Well, Jesus is always a great place to start. And so we look at the life of Jesus, and Jesus prioritized three kinds of relationships. And if we're going to be Jesus followers, we also have to have these three relationships prioritized, right? And here's the thing. Jesus did them perfectly. We're not perfect, okay? But, you know, it, it at least gives us a place to land these truths, right? And so he always prioritized his relationship with the Father, Right? You, could all, you could see this throughout Scripture, even in the book of Luke. He's always on a mountainside praying. Hey, where's Jesus? You know, he's connecting with the Father. Him and his Father are one. I mean, that's pretty solid. Right? And he always prioritized a relationship with his inner circle, his disciples and family. Right? You know, he would always teach something, and then they'd kind of get him alone and go, Jesus, what were you talking about? And he's like, okay, let me explain it to you. You know, his, his crowd, his inner circle. And then he had relationship with the outside world, right? So up with the Father, you know, in his inner circle, in the outer world. And he would go and do these healings and have compassion and engage with people, a lot of these stories that we hear, right? And so sometimes as, as we kind of assess ourselves and we're praying and reading scripture, sometimes God's like, yeah, you guys are connecting well with me, but you are not being salt and light in the world at all. When's the last time you shared your faith? And you go, oh my gosh, that's, I'm not prioritized. I've not thought about, you know, that relationship that Jesus prioritized that I also need to prioritize. Or, hey, you, you know, you're going to life group and, and you're doing these things out in the world, but you've forsaken your first love and your relationship with God. So do you see kind of how it helps us go, oh, that's how I take this truth that I've learned about and how I land it. Okay, so for, for grace and religion, grace changes everything. Grace changes our relationship with God, our relationship with our inner circle and the world. Similarly, religion will poison everything. So we're just going to look at these, these three areas as we kind of walk through where to land this. We'll start with the outer world. God's plan A for the world to come to know him is the church. Is <laughs> the spirit of God and the people of God being a megaphone of grace to the world. The aroma of our lives is to be grace and love that Jesus has shown us that we just show to others. To be salt and light. To be ambassadors for Christ. You, know, you see this throughout scripture everywhere. But one of the most effective tools that Satan has in keeping people away from a relationship with a living God is a dead religion. One of the most effective tools that Satan has to keep people away from a living God is a dead religion. Yes, the gospel itself is enough of a stumbling block. You can see this in the ruler, right? Like Jesus is there face to face and he ain't, if Jesus ain't getting through, none of us are getting through, right? It's a stumbling block in itself. But the gospel doesn't have religious hurdles that we sometimes try and add. So sometimes people will hate us because we preach the same gospel that Jesus preached. And sometimes people will hate us because we're religious hypocrites. And we need to pray that we do not do the second one and blame it on the first. And I want to be sober-minded with how difficult this is. Our hearts are fluent in religion. It's so easy to lead from it. 
The world around us is full of systems and ideologies that are grounded in being self-made and self-helped and self-improved and self-justified, work harder, right? That's, that's everywhere. That's in world religions and just how people, even without religion, operate. The world is fluent in it. So it's easy for us to just mimic what we see around us and jump right in. This is not God's will for us in Jesus. Religion will puff itself up and at the same time devalue others. It'll always close the door behind itself and excuse the one who is who's religious and, and we start to judge and, and, and punch down and critique others. Oh, did you hear what they said? Look what they do. People like them are what's wrong with everything. A lot like the religious ruler. Do you feel tempted to be there? Are you there a lot of times? As if our God operates like the world does. As if he's looking down going, oh, I see you over there, good person. And yeah, I I see the other side, the bad people. No, he's looking down going, you're all bad. You all fall short of my glory. You all sin. That's why you need a savior. By definition, someone who can do what you can't. It's surely by grace. All sides need Jesus. And we can't fall into the temptation of putting those extra religious barriers up. Blocks people's view of the grace and glory of God. And we cannot extend God's grace to others if we are looking for them to measure up to some kind of behavior first. Because keep in mind, that's not how God looked at us before he extended us grace. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us before any behavior. Grace came before any behavior from God, and so it should from us. We need to lean into the Lord and encourage one another to do the same, even though everything in our heart has us been towards law and religion. So two questions, uh, just before we transition to the next part. Is there anything that you feel tempted or you're prone to elevate to the Sabbath? Kind of any behavior that, you know, now becomes a barrier to God's grace to the world for you. Is there anything that you elevate to a Sabbath, any behavior that now is a barrier of God's grace through you to the world? You know, the strong stance that, man, if anybody's on the other side of it and they're not, they don't fall in line, man, you just, it's no longer grace. It's wrath. It's critique. Where this wall comes up when they don't measure up, man, it's hard to be a megaphone of grace with that. Maybe a diagnosis, diagnostic question for you. In the spirit of judging or criticizing others like the ruler, does the sin in your life typically bother you more than the sin in somebody else's life? Does the sin in your life bother you more than the sin in somebody else's life? Because if you find yourself constantly bothered by other people's behavior instead of the sin in your life, maybe it's indicative that you have this behavioral bend and that grace is lacking and religion is thriving. Okay, so so that's a relationship with the outer world, now kind of our inner circle. And I could have had two dozen of these, but I chose two smaller kind of inner circles, um, one in our family and one in our church family, okay? So within the context of our family, one of the areas that we can struggle with leading it from a religious spirit instead of grace is in our parenting. First off, like I said earlier, I have three under seven, so I'm not like, 
arrived in any sense on this. I'm going to be leaning on a lot of you uh, as my kids hit teen years and just a lot of circumstances I don't know how to navigate. But what I have seen and have experienced to know enough that there is this pull of behavior before belief in my parenting. I just want them to comply. (laughs) I want them to just do what I said and I can lead out of this religious spirit. And so what's the environment of your house? What's the environment of your parenting? I've heard it put like this, that for everything God created, he also created an environment for it to thrive in, right? So you think of birds, they have the sky, you have squirrels and trees and so on and so on. So the question is, did God create us? Yes. So what's the environment that we thrive in? Religion or grace? Grace. Okay, so what's the environment of our parenting? What should it be? It should be grace. So the home should ideally center around grace instead of religion or behavior first, and sometimes we get that wrong. So what does it look like to parent with a religious bend? Where you high law, more rules, more control, because we're looking to get the behavior in check, Right? And so you, maybe you have this critical spirit like the ruler. You're criticizing. And, and maybe we've seen this. It's easier maybe sometimes to see in other people, right? Or like, oh my gosh, they just rule with a heavy hand. And you know, maybe that works when they're young. But then you see as the kid gets older, they're like, they just got to get out of the house. Where are they? You know, they're not emotionally present with the parent. They're just trying to get away from under that iron fist. And when they hit 18, they're gone. Before we get deeper into this, um, if you know this is you, you kind of feel that. I want you to show some grace to yourself. You know, grace isn't just for our kids, it's for us in Christ. Because I believe this comes out of love for our kids. Like we do want what's best for them. But it comes out packaged like religion, labeled as religion, because maybe that's what we got when we were growing up and we don't know anything better to do, so we just pass it down like a bad heirloom. And maybe you just want your kids to never experience the, the hurts that you did. So what you do is you set this system up to govern and control situations. And then it looks a lot like a religious spirit. It's very behavioral. And so the hope is to help us as parents be more like our heavenly father. And be conduits and be under the label and grow in grace more and more. Especially in our parenting. So parenting from grace keeps the relationship in focus. Religion keeps the behavior. Parenting from grace keeps the relationship in focus. Religion keeps the behavior in focus. You know, you can do a hundred things right in a religious household. You can do one wrong. Guess what we're talking about? (laughs) That one, right? Keeps the behavior in focus. Grace is about relationships and the influence that those relationships have on your life. If you think about it, some of the most powerful people who steer the direction of your life the most are the ones that you're convinced love and care for you the most and you welcome their influence in your life, right? So that's parenting. That should be the ideal. I mean, that's, that's a grace environment in parenting where influence is rampant. Where you're influencing your kids. Grace fosters that. There's a relational element that primes that. And religion is largely non-relational. Because you don't deal with the person. You deal with rules and the consequences before you get to the person. 
Religious parenting produces hiddenness. I know I've broke the rules, so I don't want to hide it because there's shame, just like the adversaries of Jesus, right? I, I, I know I fall short, so I just hide it because there's no grace in my failures. It promotes hiddenness. It promotes hypocrisy, again, like the rulers, but not holiness. You feel broken down instead of built up. If any of this is you, and I think it's safe to say, this is all of us at some point, right, in our parenting One thing I see that would help us and would have helped the ruler is if we show humility. He had a chance to say, I got this wrong. I'm sorry. And he didn't. He doubled down. We don't have to make that same mistake. You know, one thing I found very early, I I can't have all the answers and I don't want to pretend to. And I can't pretend Uh, that I've got everything figured out. Um, And one of the things that I think helps our kids learn more about God's grace is when we show them that we are in utter need of it ourselves as parents. They see God and his grace more in our weakness than the false image we project that we have it all together. So leading, becoming fluent with, hey, honey, I got this wrong. I'm sorry. Daddy, mommy needs God's grace just as much as you do. Will you forgive me? Oh, what a picture of the gospel in our parenting where grace runs rampant instead of religion. The second circle and in our inner circle that we'll talk about in church life is life groups. How we do small groups that we call them life groups. And this is not a plug for the sake of plugging. Uh, you know, we, look, we seek to model the early church who did life together. We're made to be in community. Um, and the thing about this religious spirit is sometimes it's a blind spot. It is easy to see in other people. It's hard to see it in the mirror. In a community, especially where people are striving <laughs> to be marked by grace as well, man, what a beautiful opportunity. People have this view into your life. They have access to see what you might not be able to see. And you have, have enough equity and time built up with them that you trust them to trust them to give that window to speak into your life. I had a story of a, of a guy, you know, in the past month or so, reached out to me, he's in a life group with me, and he's like, hey, you know, we're talking about being critical with our words and, and, and instead being life-giving with our words. And he goes, hey, I know this has been an issue for me for the past decade. I think I've grown in this. Hey, do you see this in me? I want to know, please. And he's asking me to speak into his life to see, hey, is, is, there, is this a blind spot for me? Have you ever asked anyone about this? Have you sought this out? Have you checked your blind spot, so to say? Are you in community well enough with other people that they would be able to actually intelligently speak into your life? Like, oh, I've got enough of a view to tell you. Or do you trust people enough to where you're saying, hey, I'm going to receive what you say. And if it's you who maybe some of us are like, oh, I hope that certain someone asks me because I want to tell them about themselves. Maybe that's indicative that you should be the one asking <laughs> because that tends to sound like a behavioral bend, right? This religious spirit. Our church has men's life groups, women's life groups, co-ed life groups, student life groups, 18 to 25-year-old life groups, 
You know, ironically, we just updated our numbers, and in this, this past term, we've reached one of the lowest percentages of our total church involved in a life group across all of our campuses. It's about 85% of our church is involved. Now, talk about God's grace, because that's actually when you step back and go, yeah, it's the lowest, but still that's incredible. Like some, most churches would kill to have that. And that by God's grace, that's normal, right? That's where we are. Uh, side note, those numbers are influenced by, uh, I think our Plain City campus has launched, launched Sunday services. So those numbers, uh, people are there, but they haven't launched life groups yet. So those, you know, once they do launch life groups, those number, that number will tilt back up because it's normally been around 90%. I say all that to say, it's actually more normal in our church to be in a life group than it is not. And I know if, if you have been in a life group and you're not in a life group right now because it's been one of those things that's been easy to excuse or you've kept life group at arm's distance, hey, this is normal in our church. It's not easy. And it's not easy. You can show up at a life group and totally not let people in and not uh, trust people and not ask people and to, and to live like the early church lived, like with one another. It's not easy, but it's good. It's something that we need, and we're made to be in community. And I hope we, in our life group, start to see this culture that we see in verse 17, where the people were rejoicing. Everyone was rejoicing because of everything that Jesus has done. They weren't even the ones getting healed, right? <laughs> They're just indirectly going, oh my gosh, look how God worked. And you see this in life group. Man, God's doing stuff. And other people that aren't even me, and I'm celebrating, I'm worshiping. Grace is pretty amazing gives us life even when it's not happening to us and when we see it in others. And I want to end with the last relationship and what religion does in our relationship with God. And to you who maybe are still trying to figure this faith thing out, I first want to look at this kind of like theologically. What did religion cost the ruler of the synagogue? It cost him joy when others were rejoicing? He was criticizing. It cost him conflict with Jesus, but it warped his view of God. God in the flesh is here going, this is how I operate. And he's going, no, it must be about behavior instead. He didn't, he didn't know God. God was right in front of him. He, he just missed it. What has religion cost you? Maybe you feel like God is harsh, a taskmaster. Maybe you feel like his adversaries at the end of the story, just shame and guilt. And you're wondering how you can ever measure up. Can I just tell you, you're asking the right question, but religion is the wrong answer. The question is, grace and, and religion ask the same question, they just give a different answer. The question is, how can we possibly measure up to a holy God? We're broken, we're sinful, we can't do it. Religion says, well, we, we should try, and yes, we can add, change our behavior and, and change how we live our lives. Religion seeks to shift our attention from the work of Jesus and tries to make it about our work, work that we've done or need to do. Religion always looks to ourselves. Grace looks at Jesus. Grace does look at work, just not ours. It looks at the perfect, completed work, who on the cross, when Jesus died for our sins, says, it's finished. There's no dot, dot, dot. And so now you take it from here. No, it's finished. It's done. It's work is completed. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, he, God, made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Religion acknowledges that we need a righteousness to be right with God. 
but it looks to ourselves instead of Jesus. And if you're thinking, man, that's too easy. Just, just believe that I don't have to change any behavior for God to welcome me into heaven for, for me to be saved. That's just too easy. It wasn't too easy for the religious guy. He couldn't show the humility needed to accept that, that he had nothing to contribute to his salvation. It takes humility. It's simple. It's not easy. And I just question for you, I know as you're just wrestling with, should I be all in with God? Can I ask you, if behavior could get you into heaven, why would Jesus ever die on the cross then? If you could work your way in, why would he die? He just, I wouldn't die. I'd say, hey, no, it's on, try harder. Like you can do it. But that's not how it works because that's not how grace, that's not how the kingdom of God works. Every story in heaven is the same as this woman's in our story. Amazing grace shown to her by Jesus, unmerited favor, 100% on the work, the choice of God in her life towards her. He does all the work, so he gets all the glory. Would you marvel at the grace that he's offering to you? The completed work that you can rest in. Any other system, man, God's love is at the finish line. Right? I hope you run. I hope you get there. I hope you run hard. I hope you run long enough. It's at the finish line. And God's kingdom, grace is at, God's love is through grace and it's at the starting line. It's how he welcomes us in. It's a gift. Would you consider saying yes and going all in with God, surrendering? And maybe you're like, I'm dealing with hurts from religion. Yeah, Jesus did too. They killed him. Jesus and religion are not the same. Those who struggle with, hey, I know that. Like, I've surrendered to that. I know that's true. I know it's by grace through faith, not a result of work so that no one of us. I know all that. But I still see this label of religion popping up all over my life. I have a quote from someone. I think it's maybe John Piper. Um, it says, it's the spirit and life that flow from a failure to be humbled and broken and amazed and satisfied by the grace of Christ. There's all kinds of attitudes of pride, demandingness, lack of mercy, lack of compassion, unkindness, impatience. And those have their root in a heart that is not stunned by grace, not broken and humbled by grace, not joyfully filled by grace. And that creates a legal spirit. So some of us might know that, but we have this legal spirit in us that we struggle with. And maybe that comes from a desire to, okay, I know God saves me through grace, by faith, not a result of works, but now I want to show him that like he made a good investment. I want to prove my worth to him. That's not grace. I know that, but maybe God has more blessings for me on the other side of more, like, uh, uh, like better behavior or working really hard. Like more blessings that are outside of everything that you have in Christ right now in grace. Like what would they be? One good way to see if this is you is, is your life, is your Christian walk, is your journey with God filled with things that you have to do? Or are they filled with things that you get to do? Is your journey with God filled with things that you have to do or things that you get to do? Because in a heart mesmerized by grace, you don't, you don't 
have to have your sins forgiven. You get to get your sins forgiven. You don't have to read your Bible. I get to read my Bible. I don't get to pray. I don't have to pray. I get to pray. I don't have to be baptized. I get to be baptized. And I've heard it put this way. The essence of Christianity is grace. The ethics of Christianity, like the behavioral side, comes from gratitude. Essence of Christianity is grace. The ethics of Christianity is gratitude. You get to. So life transformation does not follow, oh, I know, but it follows, I know. So now I get to pursue my God and my Savior in these ways. You can drop the act, admit you're not good enough, walk in freedom, and that's so much better news. (laughs) So can I just call us all, myself included, to repent before God of our boasting, our self-reliance, our religion, and rest in his grace. The one who paid our penalty for sin with his life. He rose victorious over sin and death and has offered to give us his righteousness as a gift. So I'm going to pray for us and close us out. Would you pray with me? Father, by the same grace that you've saved us, God, now you're changing us. Help us to cooperate with you and rest in grace rather than running to religion. Free us from the grasp of religion and just the fluency uh, and how easy it is for us to walk in this, to be different from the world, and free us to love others like you have loved us. I pray that you would keep us from the default mode of our heart, which bends towards religion. God, we want to serve you, not so that you'll love us, but because that you do love us. Not so that we could be righteous, but because in Christ Jesus we are. Jesus, thank you so much that you deliver us not only from sin and death and Satan and hell and the wrath of God, but religion as well. God, please keep saving us from religion that leads to pride, where we feel like we're better than everyone else, or on the other side of religion, despair when we fall miserably short. Thank you for giving us the story of this woman being healed so we can marvel at the grace that you've given her and be reminded that that is us and let that reality and truth swell up into belief and praise and glory and honor to you. We love you so much. In Christ's name I pray, amen.